Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hello. With Dave Ansell. Hello, Dave. Hi, Chris. And also with me, Chris Smith. Now, coming up, a new way to knock space collisions on the head, and that's because scientists have designed a system that can stop satellites and old rocket remnants running to, into each other in space. Also, evidence that the ancient Egyptians were mixing painkillers up 5,000 years ago, and they were also mixing them with a healthy slug of another medicinal product, and that's a glug of wine. And also, we'll be looking at the brain basis of the hollow mask optical illusion. Apparently, if you show this to people with schizophrenia, they can't see it. And now we know why. That's all coming up shortly. Helen. Thanks, Chris. Also this week, it's our science question and answer show. We've got an inbox just bulging with your questions, including why are are snakes susceptible to their own venoms? Can they bite themselves? And what would it be like to ride a bike on the moon? And I love this one. What would happen if someone, a person you were holding hands with, was zapped with a taser? Would you get stunned as well? Dave. That sounds shocking. Thanks, Helen. And if you're feeling experimental in this week's Kitchen Science, I'll show you a cunning water pumping trick with a drinking straw. All you need is a straw, some scissors, a cocktail stick and some sticky tape and some water to pump. So grab those and I'll tell you what to do shortly. Thank you very much, Dave. And uh, also on the way, we'll be catching up with our resident tech expert, that's Chris Valance, and he's been talking to someone who's uncovered a very unusual invention. You're sat there in the airport, right, and, and all of a sudden this guy gets up and he walks over to a blank wall and he starts making all these strange gestures with his hands and all of a sudden he's opened his email up on this wall and he's sort of leafing through it there with his fingers <laughs> And um, one of the lead uh, researchers on the project, Patty Mace, said to me, well, I personally don't find it any stranger than uh, people walking around with Bluetooth headsets on seeming to talk to themselves all the time. It sounds like that person would fit in absolutely fine here in Cambridge. That's all on the way. Meanwhile, if you'd like to ask us any questions or get in touch with the programme, the email address for the programme is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, something which has been brought to the forefront of everyone's attentions recently is collisions between satellites after an American Iridium mobile phone satellite crashed into a defunct Russian satellite. And uh, one major source of this space junk is spent upper rocket stages. Um, Space rockets are generally multi-stage. You have one big stage which lifts up a smaller stage which lifts up a smaller stage. And that top stage quite often can reach orbit. 
Now, these rocket stages are particularly dangerous to satellites, as often they still contain a load of unburnt fuel. And if this vents, they can change direction so they can behave in an unpredictable manner. Or if you're really unlucky, if it doesn't vent, the pressure can build up and they can explode, producing a load more junk, which can cause even more chaos. Now, in low Earth orbit, there are faint wisps of an atmosphere that will eventually slow down this debris and cause it to deorbit. This could take at least 100 years or even thousands, so these things are going to stay up there a long time. When you say low Earth orbit, Dave, how, how low is low? Where um, are these things? Sort of a couple of hundred kilometres up is sort of... Right. Uh, and lower is probably the major area where they are. They're not there's, there's still atmosphere out there? There's still... I mean, you wouldn't be able to breathe it. You probably wouldn't notice it in everyday life. But if you sit there in orbit for a long time, it will slowly take energy out, especially if the sun's very active. It heats up the outer atmosphere. Um, if you've got lots of solar wind, um, and you also get very exciting... Um, aurora borealis at this time. But this will cause the atmosphere to expand and... Um, this will slow down satellites very slowly. Now, Max Surf and Brice Santer, um, the firm EADS Astrium, may have a solution to this. This involves attaching a super light sail arrangement onto the rocket stage, which deploys once the rocket has released its satellite. This would be supported by some form of inflatable structure, probably impregnated with epoxy resin, so it would become solid even if all the gas... Um, leaks out and for an Ariane 5 upper rocket stage it would have to be about 350 square metres this would increase the drag it's called an break, and cause the rocket to come back to Earth in only a couple of decades so reducing this build up of space junk so hopefully making the problem a lot less bad it's still decades though can we not have a really really big sail which would slow it down even faster or is that just totally impossible I think it's about cost really the bigger the sail the heavier it is so the more energy and more cost you need to put it up there still an intriguing idea to try and sort of slow down rockets in space using a parachute even though there's not much atmosphere for them to slow down amazing Helen well from the very latest in the 21st century technology I'm going to whiz us back thousands of years to a time to where to Cambridge no <laughs> Auckland no I'm just joking <laughs> To, to Egypt, a bit further away, um, to a time when swigging back um, something to help your headache go away with a glass of wine was actually something that we did. We don't do that these days, really. At least I certainly don't swig back an aspirin with a glass of wine or a bottle of beer. But that's what the ancient Egyptians were up to 5,000 years ago. It seemed to be that's what they were up to with what they were putting in their wine. Well, now a team of archaeologists have discovered traces of medicinal plants in the ancient wine jars buried in the tomb of one of ancient uh, Egypt. Most oh, um, earliest pharaohs called Scorpion the First, which I think is wonderful. Reminds me of some kind of movie, I think, with the rock starring the rock, I think, doesn't it? The Scorpion King, anyway. Um, but this provides the first physical evidence that ancient Egyptians were prescribing themselves plants steeped in wine as herbal remedies. Well, the study was published in the journal PNAS by Patrick McGovern from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia in the US. And his team basically went and analysed residues left behind in these ancient pottery wine jars that were excavated from a tomb in Abydos in Upper Egypt. And they found chemical signatures which showed that there was tartaric acid in those jars. And that's a really good indicator that there was once wine in those jars. And they also found various chemical traces from different active compounds found in plants. Now, we, we probably all know that plants contain all sorts of very active chemicals, partly because they can't run away when there's a predator or something trying to munch them. They've got their lovely leaves out there on display and they are really attractive to herbivores. So lots of them have evolved chemical defences to try and stop themselves from getting eaten. And those are actually the most ancient form of medicines. They're the kind of things that humans and other animals, interestingly, have figured out actually make yourself better, feel better if you've got various different conditions. And there are animals that will self-medicate with different types of plants, which is brilliant. But anyway, it seems that this is what the age 
ancient Egyptians were up to. And we, up until now, we only knew this because of papyrus um, uh, records, drawings and um, hieroglyphics um, from around 1850 BC, um, showing that they might have used these medicinal tipples. So this is the first time they actually found evidence of that. And it pushes that date way back to about 5,000 years ago, which is brilliant. Um, but the only thing is... Um, we don't yet know exactly what the plants were because they haven't quite been able to identify the particular um, uh, chemicals to an actual plant. They know that there are the active chemicals that are found in various different plants. They're now looking at refining their analysis um, to actually pinpoint the blend of herbs that were being used. And then they're going to put them to the test, these guys, McGovern and his team, are going to see if they maybe the Egyptians struck on a combination of plants that maybe would be useful to us today to treat 21st century diseases. So who knows? But it's rather wonderful to imagine these guys knocking back a bit of a medicinal herbal tipple to make themselves feel better all that time ago. Thank you, Helen. If I ask you to, do, do you know what the hollow mask illusion is? And have you ever seen it? Is it, is it the one where if you turn it round, it looks like it's still looking at you? So it's hollow, but then it, it sort of comes out at you at the same time? Something like that? That's right. That's the very illusion. If you take a look at a face, uh, say it's a mask that you would put over your face, and you look at it face on, of course it looks like a face. But imagine that on a turntable, turning round very, very slowly. As it turns round and you look into the back of it, you would expect to see just a hollowed-out appearance of a face, wouldn't you? Like a face that you're looking through. But your brain plays a trick on you, and what you actually see, and it's impossible to suppress, because I tried it for about half an hour this week in the office, uh, you see the face coming out at you. So in other words, you're seeing this internal surface of this mask being reconfigured in your mind to become a face coming out at you instead of a face going inwards. And the really interesting thing is that 99% of the population are fooled by this, or you could say can see or experience this illusion. But if you show it to someone who has schizophrenia, they cannot experience this illusion. They're not fooled by it. And what they see is, an, in, is a face that's concave. They see the inside surface of the mask. And although people knew that, they didn't know why. So a group of researchers, both at UCL and at Hanover Medical School, this is Jonathan Royser and his uh, colleague Danai Dimmer, who is based in Hanover, they decided to find out by putting schizophrenics and normal people in brain scanners and showing them this illusion, although they didn't tell them it was an illusion, asking them what they saw and then comparing the brain scans. And what they found was striking because the people who were normal, 99% of them saw this illusion when they showed them with the virtual reality headset, the picture. None of the schizophrenics were fooled at all. They all said it looked like a hollowed out or sunken in face. So they were all seeing the inside of the mask. The brain scans, on the other hand, showed stark differences. In the normal people, a part of the brain called the parietal cortex, which is located in the upper back part of your head on both sides, this became very, very active, as did the primary visual cortex, a part of the brain that decodes directly what the eyes are seeing. And what the team were able to do is to analyse the connectivity, how much those two brain regions were talking to each other. In the normal people, there's a very big augmentation in the connections between these two areas when the people see this illusion. In the schizophrenics, there was no such connectivity. And this goes along with our understanding of what's probably happening in schizophrenia, which is that rather than it being, as people view it, this sort of split personality disorder, probably schizophrenia is more that the brain processes things in a modular way. There's a bit of the brain that does hearing, there's a bit of the brain that does speech, there's a bit of the brain that does seeing. And normally what we do to create consciousness is to combine the inputs of all of these things together and experience them as a whole. And in schizophrenia, rather than connecting the 
products of those modules together, they're viewed independently of each other. So you can't unite things in this way. And so people are saying we should view it more as a sort of disconnectivity state. And what's really interesting is if people smoke cannabis, they also cannot see this illusion. So cannabis is also linked to schizophrenia. So we think that this could be putting people into a sort of pro-psychotic state where it's stopping bits of the brain influencing each other. And the reason you experience this in the first place is because you're basically relying on memory. Your brain is saying... I should be seeing the inside of a mask, but I've seen a face before. I'm expecting to see a face, so it creates a face for you to look at if you're, if you're normal. And is schizophrenia something that's difficult to diagnose? And could it be that you could show someone this experiment and that would show that they were schizophrenic? Or is it a bit more difficult than that to say? That's that direct link. Normally, and, and as someone, because I, in, in my medical job, have met quite a few people who have schizophrenia and usually um, the symptoms are quite florid and you can quite easily work out what's wrong with someone. Um, we wouldn't need subtle diagnostic measures like this but but what we do need is a way of understanding why this happens and therefore the best way to treat it or or therapies or better still ways to preempt it because what we haven't seen in this paper is do people who are destined to get schizophrenia also get fooled by this illusion or not and that might be useful because if you could scan those people and say ah these individuals could be at risk Therefore, we could identify them and give them therapy or give them treatment because what we know about this disease is that if you treat it earlier in the process, people tend to not get as bad, they get better quicker, and they don't get as bad as they could have got. So in other words, they respond better than if you let them get very bad and then try and treat them. So I think probably that that is an area to look at. Excellent, that's good stuff. Well, I'm going to talk now about one of my favourite marine creatures, the octopuses, because they hit the science headlines this week with the news that, contrary to popular belief, all species of these soft-bodied, eight-armed denizens of the deep are, in fact, venomous. And that solves one of the enduring maritime mysteries, which is how do octopus actually kill their prey? And the same actually goes for the octopus's cousins, the cuttlefish, and some squid as well. Well, the good news is that they are all harmless to people, and we'll be talking about snakes and whether they can bite themselves later on in the show. But except for the stunning, lethal, blue-ringed octopus, which is a tiny creature around 15 centimetres in size that lurks on tropical coral reefs. Those ones are deadly to human beings, but the rest of the octopuses are fine. Now, this is a study published in the Journal of Molecular Evolution, and Brian Fry from the University of Melbourne in Australia led a team of scientists on an octopus collecting expeditions, which I wish I had been on, would have been great fun, to the Great <laughs> Great Barrier Reef in Australia and to the waters of Hong Kong and to Antarctica. And as well as finding venom proteins in lots of different species of cephalopod, and that's the class of mollusks that includes octopus, cuttlefish and squid, the team also pinpointed the genes that code for these proteins. And they discovered that amongst all these various species, the same venom gene was inherited from a single common ancestor a long, long time ago. And it turns out that octopus venom is very similar to the proteins in other animals like snakes, um, which just goes to show that they've actually independently evolved a similar solution to how to create a molecule that's toxic so you can kill your prey or get rid of something that's trying to attack you. Um, so this new octopus discovery really sheds light on how, how evolution, if you like, came up with that solution of how to make a molecule that's venomous. And it should pave the way as well towards developing new drugs for us humans to have a go at treating our own pain. Strangely enough, um, toxins like this actually can help treat pain um, and uh, allergies and cancers and various things like that. So it also means we know now how octopus kill their prey. They can grab a tough-shelled crab 
with their suckered tentacles, pierce its shell and put it sharp with its sharp beak and then inject venom to kill those creatures. But it leaves us with the eternal conundrum. And maybe you guys can help us out here. What is the plural of octopus? I think it's octopodes because I asked a friend who is a Greek scholar and he told me that was the correct way. Is that how you pronounce it? I, I thought it was octopodes. Oct- no, I octopodes, octopodes because Greek okay. the ES is ease, isn't yes, it? Yes, I thought octopodes sound fun. All right, octo- we'll go with octopodes. octopi, don't they? But it's octopi- wrong. Like octopuses. cactus, cacti, it's wrong. Mm. I think because it's Greek, it's octopodes, I believe. There you go. Am I right? Solved. I don't know. I, I had a look around and I think it's, it seems fairly unclear. I think it's either octopuses or octopodes. And I like octopodes. octopodes. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. Now, also this week, it is the 66th anniversary. And in fact, today is the, that very day, 66 years ago, that the famous Bicycle Day occurred. And Bicycle Day was when Dr. Albert Hoffman, who was a researcher in Basel, was working on something which has subsequently spawned an entire revolution the psychedelic revolution, because he took a famous trip home on his bicycle from work after inventing what subsequently became known as LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide. And he was doing it by studying a fungus that grows on wheat. And his discovery was entirely accidental. And to tell us a little bit about it is Professor Philip Strange, who's the Director of Pharmacology at the University of Reading. Hello, Philip. Hi there. So tell us a bit about this uh, momentous anniversary that we're celebrating today and in effect this week. Um, well, Hoffman, as you know, as you said, was an organic chemist working in Sandoz in Basel in the 1940s, and he was working on these chemicals derived from the fungus ergot. Uh, and one of the chemicals he made based on the ergot was uh, LSD. And on April the 16th, 1943, he uh, was working on LSD, and he experienced some funny effects, including hallucinations after working with the chemical. Um, and he went home for the weekend. Uh, and on the 19th of April, that's uh, 66 years ago today, he came to work keen to verify these odd effects of the drug. And so he took a quarter of a, quarter of a milligram of the pure drug and experienced the same psychedelic effects again, only much more strongly, because this is actually a very large dose to take, as we now know. Um, he felt very odd that day. He, he experienced these psychedelic effects, and he decided to go home. And as this was wartime, there were no cars, so he used his bike. And the crazy bicycle ride home through the streets of Basel under the influence of the LSD was the first demonstration of the powerful psychedelic effects of the drug. And so it's termed Bicycle Day in the psychedelic counterculture. Although it obviously didn't harm him too much because he actually died last year at the age of 102. Um, but what was he actually trying to achieve? Obviously not to make hallucinogens. He was working on these agents for some reason, presumably not with that reason in mind, though. Well, the LSD, I think, was just an accident, really, in some respects. You know, he was, the, 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 the Sandals were interested in... They were, they were in the business of making new drugs, and so, and so they wanted to look at different sources, and they chose a natural product, this ergot, which grows, as you said, on wheat, but also on rye as well. And it contains all sorts of interesting chemicals. And so, for example, preparations of ergot have been used for years to quicken labor. And, and the, the, the Sandoz isolated the active compound ergometrine from that, and it's still used um, to stop hemorrhaging after childbirth. Because it uh, constricts arteries, doesn't yes, it? The, doesn't, right, the same, yeah. doesn't the same drug also prove useful in the treatment of migraines by preventing the blood vessels in the brain from well, that's dilating That's ergotamine. Which that's is a, similar, isn't it? It's similar, but it's, it's, it's a different compound. It's ergotamine. Yes, that's right. No, that's it. Um, and it works very similarly to the triptans, which are now have really t- taken over in treatment of migraine. Do we know how LSD actually does what it does, though? Um, we don't know clearly, but I mean, but what uh, what LSD does is it uh, it hijacks some of the, the the receptors in the brain for chem- one of the chemicals called serotonin. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter, a brain chemical, 
which is very important for transmitting messages in our brains, and it's involved it's involved in all sorts of different things like emotion, uh, as well as also constricting arteries, as you've said. And uh, it acts by binding to proteins called receptors. And LSD basically binds to those receptors and hijacks the effect. So it's not, it's not surprising to have these very complex effects. Why is it that some people experience bad outcomes from doing this, though? Because, of, of course, even Hoffman himself said that uh, you can sometimes get bad trips, where rather, rather than seeing nice things, you see nasty things. I don't know the answer to that question, really. I think, I think one thing is that people take too much. Because I think it, you know, it was espoused by the hippie culture, and I think they, it was used in a very uncontrolled manner there, I think. I think it's one reason. I mean, another reason is I think people are all different, you know, in the way they react to these things, in you know, different uh, drugs and so on. And I think also perhaps the preparations of the drug people are being given are not pure. But at the same time, and just to finish off, I think this does tell us quite a bit about how we go about finding drugs, because Helen was saying that if you look at, say, the octopus, there may be genes which it uses to make toxins, and those toxins that kill things could also prove therapeutically useful. I think that the science that Sandoz were doing that accidentally led to the generation of LSD in itself was a very sound way to discover drugs, wasn't it? Oh, it is, and I think it's still used by some companies nowadays. There are still, you know, particularly the deep sea organisms, I think, are felt to, to contain new structures which, on which you can then base new drugs. Thank you very much, Philip. We'll have to leave it there. That was Professor Philip Strange. He's from Reading University, telling us about Bicycle Day. It was 66 years ago today that Albert Hoffman, a chemist, discovered the chemical that became known as LSD. And in fact, Philip has written an article which is on the Naked Scientist website, which describes that story in more detail. If you want to go and find it, you go to nakedscientist.com forward slash articles. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You're listening to Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dave Ansell. There's also another way to listen to The Naked Scientists and you can chat about the science in the show with like-minded folks at the same time and that's in the virtual world of Second Life. We're live at 10am Second Life time every Sunday so if you want to join us, sign up for Second Life, visit the Scilands and then search The Naked Scientists. You can drop by our mansion and relax on the sound lounges and listen to the show. Now, this week we've got a really simple kitchen science for you. So all you need, apparently, as Dave has just told me, is a kebab, skewer, a straw, some sellotape and a cup of plain old water. So, Dave, what are we going to do with these things? OK, this is quite simple. Basically, you want to take your straw and then basically split it up into thirds. And so a third of the way along, make a cut in it, which is almost all the way through, but not quite. And this is just a plain old plastic drinking straw. Bog standard yep. yeah, drinking straw. And then two-thirds of the way along, do the same thing. So you snipped in there, but you haven't quite cut it off yet. Yeah. So now I can so it bend can... it round into a triangle, just leaving the kind of edge of the straw, which it hasn't been cut right. on. Mm -hmm. So it's got a nice triangle there. Excellent. E equilateral triangle, yes. That's that, that'll do. That'll okay. work. <laughs> then take, a, take the kebab skewer and poke it through the middle of the straw. Um, so if you fold it into a triangle, you want to put it in the same plane as a triangle. So I'll poke it into the top. Like it's easy spearing the straw spearing it in the through. middle. So the there end of go. the... Without spearing yourself, I hope. Yeah, yeah be careful not okay. to spear yourself. That could be messy. Good. Um, so okay. now the two ends of the straw can meet the kebab stick in the middle. And then just get some tape and tape the two in there. So you've almost got... What I'm looking at now is almost like a sort of gardening fork before you put the two ends of the straw together you, and then you're actually going to pull those outside ones in to make a triangle speared by the, the kebab stick. That's right. Excellent. Okay. And then all I want you to do at home is to 
point the pokey end of the um, the straws into the water and then spin the kebab stick, stick so the straw so the triangle spins round and round. Okay, so you've got a long kebab stick with a little bit at the bottom, then the triangle that it's sticking through, and then a long tail kind of sticking up into the air. And you can pop that on top of your cup of water and spin it round on its axis. It's a bit like a spinning top. Yeah, so the um, ends of the straw are just in the water. So the ends of the straw are just in the water. Um, and you're just holding on and spinning round, kind of rotating it. Thank you very much. So have a go at that. If you want to have a go and tell us uh, what you think will happen when you take that triangular structure and shove it into the water and then spin it, the email address for the programme, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Uh, we are, of course, answering all your science questions because it's our science Q&A show this week. So any questions you have, just send them in to us and we'll have a go at them for you. Talking of questions, we've got one here from Andrew Norton um, from the forum. Uh, just Andrew Norton. Um, he's got a question, which is, why if you sneeze in the dark, um, when you open your eyes again, as it's apparently it's impossible to sneeze with your eyes shut, or almost so, why does he see white speckles in front of his eyes? That's a fantastic question. Have you guys seen mm. this? I oh, see, yeah. I quite often see white speckles in front of my eyes when it's just dark. <laughs> I don't need to sneeze. Uh-huh. You know, this is what's called an endoptic phenomenon in other words it's a visual hallucination effectively which is arising from within your eyeball and i think there's a number of possibilities here and i think that he could be seeing one of two things one is that if you stimulate your eye just because the retina is very sensitive to pressure if you just push on the side of your eye you'll see a a wonderful hallucinogenic colored light display we're talking about lsd earlier you can do it yourself almost just by pressing on the side of your eye if you you ever try that if you press on the side of your eye you should see some interesting colors and you shouldn't do that too much well i'm not saying poke your eye out helen i'm just saying (laughs) apply gentle pressure to the side of your eye this is because the retina is sensitive to pressure and i think it causes discharges of different bits of the retina which provokes those visual Uh, hallucinations that you see they're they're just uh, photoreceptors firing off as though they've seen light that they haven't really seen when you sneeze of course you've got air jetting out of your nose and ricocheting around at 100 miles an hour and i suspect that the vibration of the air coming out of your nose probably impacts on air that's in your sinuses which are like cul-de-sacs and so you pressurize the air in your sinuses and this causes a shock wave probably to reverberate through your skull and i suspect that some of that shock wave might go into your eyes and it could therefore cause the retina to to jolt a little tiny bit um the fact that not everyone gets that and everyone does sneeze a lot says that it's unlikely but but i was poking around and and i found a very interesting um comments on the internet about someone called Shearer and not Alan Shearer the footballer but Shearer with a double E and Shearer's phenomenon and this is amazing because it's used as a way of measuring blood flow through the retina what you see when you look at the dark when you look at a lovely deep blue sky and just nothing else in the visual world but the deep blue sky and you see these little white speckles coming in you notice this Mm. they follow a very stereotype path if you keep watching them you'll see that they tend to all take the same pathway, a wiggly line running in from one part of your retina towards another. They're not random, they're coming, they're flowing. These are white blood cells, it turns out. And what's happening is because they're very, very um, infrequent compared with red blood cells, they only crop up now and then as these white blobs. And when you look at the blue sky, the red blood cells, which your blood vessels are full of, absorb the blue light quite well. But the white blood cells which are infrequent don't they reflect it and you see a white sparkle on your retina and that's why you see these white blobs when there's nothing else in the visual world to distract you so i wonder if what's going on with that with with that question is that maybe the sneeze provoked him to look at the sky and he then saw 
what's called Shearer's phenomenon. But people can be trained to look at a computer screen and track the numbers of white white blobs that they see coming across, and this can be used as a measure of retinal blood flow if you don't have another fancy way of doing it. Isn't that amazing? That is crazy. But it's the white blood cells in your eye. That That is actually crazy. The other kind of speckle which I've noticed occasionally is if it's very, very, very dark, you sometimes... Everything seems to be covered with covered with a very fine white speckle, a bit like noise on a TV screen. That's right. That's called prisoners uh, or or captives hallucinations, uh, or prisoners light show is also known as. And this is where your retina is tuning itself to the ambient conditions. Because you know how you go from a bright room to a dark room, and your retina over the course of about half an hour changes its sensitivity. You couldn't see in the dark, and then you can. And that's your retina actually tuning up the sensitivity of photoreceptors, making them more sensitive. You use rods rather than cones. You increase the connections between cells to increase the signal. So it's a bit like if you take your radio and the volume is the signal coming out is not very good, you turn the volume up. What, what your eyes are effectively doing is turning their volume up to become more sensitive to the light that's coming in and because there's virtually no light coming in you start to even see the noise that's being made in your retina even though there's no signal there and so people who go down caves will say if you turn all the lights out in the cave where it's genuinely jet black you see this a lot and as i say prisoners kept in solitary no light as a form of torture nasty stuff nasty dave got a question here from a guy called alan alan shine who says what determines the initial rotation of the direction of stellar cosmic objects. In other words, you look at galaxies, they're rotating. You look at the sun, it's rotating. You look at the planets going around the sun, they're all rotating. But what makes them decide what direction to rotate in in the first place? I think, basically, as far as everyone knows, basically random chance. Um, So if you start off with matter approximately evenly spread out over the universe... And everything's got everything's a bit moved around a bit randomly. Um, so some bits are moving a little bit in one direction, other bits moving a little bit in the other direction. And so some large areas will have ever so slight spin in one direction, and other large areas will have ever so slight spin in another direction. Then, if that collapses due to gravitational collapse, then um, if you've ever tried to climb in towards the centre of a, ra- a roundabout in a playground, it spins faster and faster. Or if you've ever watched an ice skater. When an ice skater moves all of her mass into the centre, then she spins faster and faster and faster. So this minute amount of rotation that started off at a huge scale slowly gets magne- increases and increases and increases as the, um, it collapses under gravity, um, conservation angular momentum. So it speeds up and speeds it up. So some galaxies will be spinning in one direction, others in the other direction. And we should see a roughly equal proportion of each. Yeah, basically a random. So there should be some them. systems, a bit like our solar system, where instead of the planets going one way around the sun, they could all be going the other way instead. Yes. But you shouldn't ever see cosmic billiards going on where one's going one, but one planet's going one way and one's going the other. Unless, unless something catastrophic yeah, uh, yeah, has happened. Unless catastrophic. I think um, on individual solar systems, there's quite a lot of cast- catastrophic stuff which could have gone on. You're probably more talking about galaxies when you actually have enough sort of averaging to make it work. Brilliant. Thank you, Dave. Helen, Penny McNeil wants to know, are snakes susceptible to their own venoms? It's a great question. Well, there's two things to consider, I guess. That is... Well, one, they obviously aren't susceptible to their own venom in their own fangs because they don't kill themselves every time they make some venom. And that's pretty cool. But it's but also quite easy to understand because we also have poisonous chemicals inside our bodies that don't kill us because they're kept within certain areas. So, for example, our pancreas creates a deadly cocktail of um, enzymes. And if, if you have a disease of the pancreas or if your pancreas bursts and they all come out, then that can really spell a big problem for you and you start digesting yourself from the inside. Um, but because it's kept in certain uh, in organs that aren't... 
that are lined with um, uh, cells that aren't susceptible to those enzymes, then you're okay. And once it gets into your digestive tract, um, then you're okay, which is also why if you if a, if a snake happened to swallow some of its own venom, it would be okay because the venom is made of protein and the enzyme, uh, an enzyme which is a type of protein, and that will denature when it gets into the strong acids in your stomach and it will break down the structure of those enzymes and stop them from working and stop them from being so deadly. But the other question is, what? yes, what if a snake accidentally bit itself or or if another snake bit it? Um, and the, the answer seems to be, yes, they are susceptible to their own venom. If it's injected yeah. into their system, they can be susceptible to it. But um, some scientists have also found anti-venom inside snakes that they can be, they can actually develop their own anti-venoms to, the, to their own venom. Um, but we don't quite know yet how that happens. It could be that they do have a low level of exposure, just accidentally um, <laughs> biting themselves occasionally, maybe. As you do. As you do, whoops. <laughs> um, or, or maybe it's something that's evolved specifically. And, and you can imagine that there might be some selective pressure um, for that to evolve, for a snake to, um, to maybe not from itself, but perhaps from its mates or something. Sure. You know, I mean, I suppose a good that... correlate of this is spiders, isn't it? Because we know that spiders are vulnerable to their own toxins because the female can bite the male and kill the male with, with their venom. Mm. So I suppose the same could be true for yeah, snakes because ven- so. these venoms are proteins that get injected into the body thank you Helen uh, Dave quick one for you and I love this question from Karen Brown she's listening in Essex uh, she says uh, if my partner is hit by a taser will I be shocked too <laughs> that is a great question um, I, I want to know where Karen lives because I won't be going there <laughs> it does sound very scary ok how does a taser work um, most tasers work essentially by shooting out two little darts and behind those two little darts are two pieces of wire and the idea is you get hit by the two darts they then make a nice conducting um, get stick into you so they make a nice electrical connection to you and then um, the the thing at the taser itself applies a high voltage between those two darts so a current flows between the two of them Um, that causes your muscles to all contract Um, it's probably high frequency frequency which disables you most badly so you lock up and you can't move um, whether it would affect you if you're standing next to you if some, you're holding hands you might get a little bit of a shock but it's probably going to be very very small because most of the current is running between the two um, needles which are stuck into you and skin to skin contact isn't a very good electrical con- contact so you probably wouldn't get a very big um, shock at all So you're alright to hold hands Karen thank you for that wonderful question This is The Naked Scientist with Chris, Dave and Helen uh, and we're answering your science questions for you If you have something for us to look into our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science The Naked Scientists And now on The Naked Scientists it's time to catch up with the latest from the world of technology Amira Senthalingam met up with our tech correspondent Chris Valance Yes, it's time for a technology update. So I'm here at the BBC Television Centre in London having a coffee with our resident expert, Chris Valance. Now, Chris, it's been a few months since we've heard from you. So what's been happening in the world of technology? Well, one of the high points for me was the UK's first ever Maker Fair, which was held up in Newcastle. Making is quite the craze in the US. It's uh, homebrew technology. It's, if you like, DIY technology. It's people who have a real enthusiasm for gadgets and tech and who want to make it themselves out of kits or out of everyday objects, pulling things apart, putting them back together again. And the Maker Faire in Newcastle brought dozens of British enthusiasts together and we saw all kinds of things on display from homemade robots to uh, robotic musical instruments to even technological jokes. There was somebody who'd made a kettle that wouldn't boil if you 
looked at it, like the old proverb, uh, somebody had built the computer game Lunar Lander, except instead of making it out of a computer screen like a traditional computer game, they made it out of bits of wood and string, so you were actually controlling a physical spaceship rather than a computer graphic. So lots of wonderful things on display, and here's just a very short, if you like, sound tour of the fair. It's a hand-activated remote player, or harp, and you put your fingers on the inside and it makes nice tinkly noises. All the things on this stall are um, robots of some kind. Uh, most of the stuff I make is made out of tat, and Uncanny Valor is no exception. She's a very lovely sort of 1950s doll that I've um, roboticised to um, make a sort of soothsaying doll. And later on this afternoon, she's actually going to be doing a a very impressive, I hope, uh, mind-reading trick. So the sounds are some of the weird and wonderful things that you could find at the Maker Fair. Now, there is a more important point here. Some of the people who were there were selling electronic kits, if you like, a garden shed-type business. All of them said their businesses were doing very well, which is interesting given the current credit crunch. Well, that tech event took place in the UK, but you've also been finding out about what's been happening over in the States. One of the great challenges in computing is how to best enable humans to interact with computers. We have keyboards, we have the mouse, but what does the, what does the future hold? Well, that was really one of the topics being discussed at a major US conference, the Computer Human Interaction Conference, bringing together researchers from across the US. Now, my colleague Clark Boyd, who is the world's technology correspondent, went along to the conference and was given a tour of a very interesting piece of technology, which, if you like, turns the computer into something that sort of sits in the background, that watches what you do and responds to your actions. It's produced by a group of people at uh, MIT, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's called Sixth Sense. The way it kind of observes what you do and interacts with you is a little bit spooky. And I got Clark to explain more. Essentially, what it is trying to do is to turn uh, your entire environment, any surface, uh, into a computer complete with an, an internet hookup. First of all, you have to wear a, a projector around your neck, a tiny projector. You also have to wear a tiny web camera around your neck. And what the web camera does is, is that um, working with some homegrown software that they've created, it detects the different movements uh, that you're making, the different movements that your hands are making. It can detect objects that your hands are interacting with. It kind of determines what you're interacting with, what you're trying to do with it, and then it goes out on the internet and searches for uh, information that you might find useful in that situation and projects it through this tiny projector onto any surface around you. Uh, it's hardly bigger than, you know, a, a small camcorder sort of device. It's really pretty amazing what they've managed to put into this. And this is commercially available hardware. The hardware only costs about $350. All of the real power in this is the software and getting the software to recognize your gestures, uh, recognize the objects that you're interacting with, and then getting it to pull up the right kinds of information. I mean, they've called this uh, Sixth Sense, but it's actually more like uh, another movie, isn't it? A Minority Report. Yes, it's very similar to that. And in fact, it's funny when you speak to Pranav Mistry, who is uh, the MIT graduate student who's heavily involved in the project, he actually cites that film, Minority Report, as being the inspiration behind it. 
Now, it is obviously very early days for this technology. It looks very much like a prototype. When you see it in action, it's both mesmerising in the sense that it projects screens and interfaces onto walls and surfaces and, and hands, but you also look at it and it, you do sort of wonder, if you wandered around the streets with this, you might get some very funny looks indeed, because it's, it, it is like having a, an overhead projector, sort of dazzling everything in front of you. Well, that was one of the questions that I put to the, the team there at MIT because I'm sitting there thinking to myself, yeah, well, it's you're sat there in the airport, right? And, and all of a sudden this guy gets up and he walks over to a blank wall and he starts making all these strange gestures with his hands. And, you know, all of a sudden he's opened his email up on this wall and he's sort of leafing through it there with his fingers. And I said, well, what about sort of socially and culturally? Is this going to take off? Is this going to fly? And um, one of the lead uh, researchers on the project, Patty Mace, said to me, uh, well, I personally don't find it any stranger than uh, people walking around with Bluetooth headsets on seeming to talk to themselves all the time. She says this might actually be more socially acceptable. That was Clark Boyd describing MIT's sixth sense. Now, it's going to be a while before this is actually on the market, isn't it? While it's very much a prototype at this stage, and like all prototypes, maybe it sounds a little far-fetched, it'll be interesting to see if it, like so many others, actually becomes something mainstream in the future. I think it could catch on. We've got people doing that here in Cambridge without it already. That was Chris Valance talking with our own Mira Senthalingam. And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Helen Scales and with Dave Answer. We're answering your questions. If you've got any questions for us, our email address, chris at thenakedscientist.com. And don't forget kitchen science. We asked you to get a straw, basically turn it into a triangle, point the two open ends into some water, spike it with a um, cocktail stick or a wooden skewer, then spin the whole thing together and give us a ring if you have a go and find out what happens. You should point out you've cut little holes in the corners, yeah, the top corners, yeah. Top and we want to know what happens when it spins in the water. Sounds good. I've got a question here for Dave from Alex, and he wants to know, what would it be like to cycle on the moon? Great question. Slightly crazy. What do you reckon, Dave? Okay, the big, there are a couple of differences between the moon and the Earth. Um, one of them is there's no atmosphere, so if you, you could cycle far faster, you wouldn't get slowed down by air resistance. The other big difference is gravity. Um, gravity on the moon is about a sixth as strong as it is on the Earth. As far as I can work out, basically that means that if you're cycling on the moon at 20 miles an hour, it's equivalent to cycling on the Earth six times faster but in slow motion. So it'd be equivalent to cycling on Earth at 120 miles an hour but in slow motion. So whenever you went over... I don't get that. What okay, do you mean? so if you're, if you're cycling on Earth at 120 miles an hour and you hit a small bump, you're going to fly up into the air... Um, same thing would happen on the moon, but at 20 miles an hour. So if you hit any bumps, you're going to fly up into the air. So you could do that thing like an ET, where you sort of bicycles in the air, and you'd, you'd just have your feet going around on the pedals, and you'd be airborne for quite a while then. For, for quite, quite a while, same sort of distance as you would be if you were doing 120 miles an hour. Also, if you're doing 120 miles an hour and you tried to turn around a sharp corner, you wouldn't have enough grip, so you'd slide and fall over. Same thing would happen on the moon. There's less gravity, so there's less friction. So if you try to make, go around a corner at 20 miles an hour, you're going to have to do it very, very gently because otherwise you're going to slip over and fall over. Sounds quite, quite fun to me. Fantastic. Helen, got a question for you from Rodney who says, do oysters feel pain? It's a great question and something that actually stirs up seafood food lovers a lot um you know you've got your oyster there you're shucking it away squeeze of lemon juice and they say that you should see it uh, twitching if you put your lemon juice on it which goes to show that they can sense chemicals and they can sense things going on but do they feel pain great question well i think the answer has to be well we don't really know we 
Probably not. They certainly they have a nervous system. They can respond. They have no brain as such. They have two ganglia, kind of masses of nerves around their body, but not a central brain like ours. And I don't think anyone can possibly claim that oysters are conscious. They don't have an awareness like like um, higher mammals, not just ourselves, but other creatures like dolphins and things. Um, and it's it, and I certainly think you know. I shouldn't think there's a big problem with oysters because there's still big debates going on about far more advanced uh, creatures like fish. Like, should we be? Uh, is it cruel to go fishing for fun? Do they feel pain? And that's the sort of thing that that's, the debate still goes on. Scientists have found um, a lot of very sensitive uh, re- receptors in the face of fish um, that we think probably may well um, mean that they can actually s- detect uh, damage to their skin, things like that. But whether that's actually translated into pain is the some- is the question that we really haven't got to the bottom of yet is it pain as we feel pain do they go ouch or do they just go oh that you know i know that's going on that's something that's not good and i need to do something about it but not necessarily you know that that really hurts but there was one study i think that i does sound rather cruel but we do need to understand these things so they did it and they took trout a freshwater trout this is a scientist from the university of edinburgh and they actually injected bee venom into their lips and so what they did, and, and also a so kind of a bee stung lips. Bee stung lips. <laughs> and what they found was, uh, which I think hints that maybe they are feeling pain, is that these fish, uh, compared to ones that just had water injected into their lips, they rubbed their lips on the bottom of the tank and on the gravel, and they didn't go back to feed as quickly as the ones that just had water, um, and and they rocked. You, you, have you ever seen? It's rather it's sad, you <laughs> <Rocked>. know. It, <laughs> no, not unrolled. No, um, in zoos sometimes, or in, in perhaps older zoos when when they weren't designed well enough to keep animals um, uh, interested and keep them stimulated, they they could develop a kind of rocking motion um, to show that they're sort of you know not enjoying themselves. And that similar thing was happening with these with these fish. So something is going on. I think they can sense pain, but that's still a question that we haven't answered. And I think you're probably okay with your oysters, and I certainly enjoy eating them. So go ahead. Um, we've also had a question from Succubus Huntress on um, Second Life, which is when you touch an electric fence, um, you get a shock. And if you touch your mate, you also, they also get a shock. So why not a taser? Well, I think it's really in the answer uh, that you gave, Dave, which is that the way a taser works is to put two probes at very high electrical potential, which means there's a very big potential difference between the two probes. And so most of the current in the taser is flowing from one probe to the other probe. But the electric fence is working slightly differently, which is that it's putting a wire or a cluster of wires at a very high potential relative to the ground so that animals that brush against the electric fence, then feel a current flowing from the fence through them to ground, and that's uncomfortable and it puts them off. So if you put yourself in the position of that animal, you're holding on to someone and you touch the fence then both you and the person you're holding on to have a connection to ground. You're offering a path to the ground through the, uh, for the electricity flowing through the electric fence, and therefore there will be a current, because rather than, unlike the taser, which has got the two probes, each of them at a higher and lower potential relative to each other, it's the ground that is the low potential and the fence that's the high potential in that context, so it's a slightly different situation. We've actually just had an email in from Karen who asked that question about tasers, and she says, thank you very much. Um, she, I guess she has, she has no excuse now for not holding her husband's hand and she says she loves the forum as well because there are lots of things there she didn't know and lots of things she needs to know so thanks very much for emailing karen That's thank great. you helen it's chris dave and helen this is the naked scientists and in a second we'll be finding out uh, this week's question of the week and also finding out the answer to dave's kitchen science which is all about what happens if you take a little straw and spin it in water if you've got a question for us the email address chris at the naked scientist.com laying the facts bare i say the Naked Scientists. 
You're listening to The Naked Scientist. And now it's time to invite the gorgeous Diana O'Carroll back into the studio for our question of the week. Well, I always say you're lovely, so I thought she I had to go for a different, different, every week, different word. To you, and Helen. you are gorgeous, Diana. The way it's Hello. going, I ought, to be, I ought to be a model by now. <laughs> I think we should be careful with the uh, the whole trust issue on this. You know, it's, uh, people's expectations are so modest. Very disappointed. Anyway, uh, this week, why don't fish wink at you? Hello, Naked Scientist. My name is Lauren. I'm calling from Huntington Beach, California, in the USA. Why is it that fish do not have eyelids? My goldfish and koi fish assume a nightly ritual of gathering in one lower portion end of the tank when I turn out all the lights at night for bed. They're all still there in the morning as if they were sleeping. How long do fish sleep? And how can they rest if their eyes never close? Thank you, Naked Scientist. So what is it that Lauren's fish get up to at night? I'm Mark Briffer. I'm a behavioural ecologist at the University of Plymouth. To answer the first part of this question, we really have to go back into the evolutionary history of the vertebrate eye, which is the same basic structure in fish and humans. And the eye first evolved in the ancestors of fish. So it's well suited to an aquatic environment where its surface is kept moist all the time. But the eye isn't so well suited to exposure to the air where it could dry out. And the reason fish don't have eyelids is because underwater, they don't need eyelids. But not having an eyelid doesn't mean that the fish can't go to sleep. And I'm sure that many listeners have experienced falling asleep with the radio on, hopefully not during the Naked Scientist. But the reason you can do this is because sleep isn't a complete lack of awareness of what's going on in your surroundings. It's a period of reduced responses to external stimuli. So not having eyelids to completely shut out the light doesn't mean that fish can't sleep. And a recent study on zebrafish, a common fish kept as pets, shows that these fish can in fact fall asleep. And when they're sleeping, they sink to the bottom of the tank and their tails kind of droop down as they become more relaxed. Some zebrafish apparently even experience insomnia. So learning more about how long and how often fish can sleep for, and it's, it's quite a new area, could actually help us with understanding sleep problems in humans. Fish don't have eyelids because they don't need them underwater. And that's exactly what Chemistry for Me said on the forum. He also added that some sharks can swim whilst asleep which is quite good. I wish I could do that. Um, well, no one, yet, no one yet knows the effects of insomnia on fish, but watch this space for future research. Well, next week we'll have a similarly watery theme, and it's on lime scale. My name is Tony Rogers, and I live in Durham in Norfolk. I've been told a magnetic field can dissolve lime scale in water pipes. Is this true, and how does it work? Since the pipes and I believe the lime scale are ferrous and not affected by a magnet or a magnetic field. Can those pipe magnets defer your water? Or is it just a pipe dream? I didn't make that joke, someone else did. Right, uh, let us know. You can't what get you... away with it like that, <laughs> I'm afraid. Uh, yeah, I don't want responsibility for that one, it's terrible. Right, let us know what you think by emailing us. That's chris at thenakedscientist.com, or you can put your answer on the forum. It's like we've built specially for you to write what you think, and that's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you very much, Diana. That's Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. You can catch up on all the past episodes of Question of the Week because they're all published on our website and on things like iTunes as podcasts in their own right. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists.
This is The Naked Scientist with Chris, with Dave and with Helen. We're answering your science questions for you. We've also had an email from Teresa in Suffolk who says... I'm losing my sight, but why is it that I still have hallucinations? And the answer is, Teresa, that you can actually get signals coming from the visual system, not just from the photoreceptors, the things that convert light waves into brain waves. You can also get signals coming from all of the things that create the visual world for you. So that means the other bits of your retina that are not harmed by whatever's causing you to go blind. You can also get them coming from the, from the brain itself, in the same way as you can get tinnitus in your ears. We think that might be a bit like phantom limb syndrome, for instance. So there are a whole raft of reasons why people get hallucinations. And, of course, the normal hallucination that we all get every time we go to bed at night is we, go, we, we dream. And this is where the bits of the brain that involved in doing certain jobs during the day, when you go to sleep, they become active again and they play out or re- replay some of what you've been doing during the day. And that includes the visual parts of the brain that create your visual experience. So even though your eyes may no longer work, you may not be able to physically see, you still have visual memories and those can still be played out and you can still experience them. And one of my friends friends who went blind at a uh, young age, he said he actually loved going to sleep because it reminded him what colours were like, because then he could experience colours in his mind's eye again. And then when people said things were red or blue or green, he could understand and appreciate those colours again. Amazing stuff. Well, earlier on, Dave asked you all to take a straw, turn it into a triangle, push a skewer through the middle of it and spin it round on its end in a bowl of water. And Dave's sitting next to me and I am so intrigued to find out what happens. So, Dave, what's going to happen? What are we going to see when this goes on? Well, the best thing to do is to actually try it. Oh, I'm going to have a go. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, so we've got the straw. Um, Basically, two um, straws, open ends at the top. Two sides sides of the triangle have got open ends at the top. So if you spin that nice and and quickly... do I let go of it or do I no, hold on to it? keep holding it and spin it nice and quickly. In one direction? In one direction. Oh! <laughs> oh, I that was see, I see. <laughs> I'm That's covered why in Dave water. Got you to hold it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the last time I offered to have a cook kitchen science. So, what happened is the water flew out of the open ends of the, of the straw. I'd have another go, but I think I might get the microphone wet. Yeah, it was probably a bit... <laughs> it was that was really good. It was like a rather beautiful fountain for a moment there. Fantastic. Why is it doing that? <laughs> OK, it was a bit like a water sprinkler, wasn't it? Um, what's happening is that when you spin the straw round, um, you've got a little bit of water in the bottom of that, and you're spinning that round as well. Now, if you sit on something which is spinning, um, there's a su- what's called a pseudo-force, which gives the impression that everything's actually being thrown outwards. It's called centrifugal force. It's actually because things are trying to carry on going in a straight line and you're making them go in a circle. So it's, it's easy to think of it as centrifugal force in this case. And so what's happening is that the water is getting pushed outwards by the pseudo-force, centrifugal force, and the only way it can move outwards is by also going up the tubes until it eventually gets right up to the top and it carries on coming out. And once it's up the top, it's moving quite fast because it's spinning, so it gets thrown outwards and produces lovely sprinkling sprinkler effect. Fantastic. Is that how real sprinklers work? Um, not so much how real sprinklers work. It is how a lot of real pumps work. So the pump on your vacuum cleaner works in exactly the same principle. You basically just get a big electric motor, attach it to what's called an impeller, which spins the air around really fast. You let the air in the middle and gets thrown out the side and go, comes out the side of the vacuum cleaner through the little vents. And so it sucks air out of the um, the. Uh, bag sucking air in um, and so you've got a vacuum cleaner it's also how most of the pumps in a washing machine work and lots basically any pump which is the simplest kind of pump you can do which will move lots and lots of fluid at fairly low pressure 
Good stuff. Well, thank you very much for giving me a good soak. We thought day. you needed a wash, Helen. That's what it is. Uh, ha, ha. An email from uh, Nat Spirit, who is uh, listening in Second Life, says, uh, talking about Diana's question about fish going to sleep at night, he says he can sleep in lectures with his eyes wide open. Um, also got a question from Science Copperfield, who says, has anyone, talking about uh, watching what the brain does in a brain scanner, has anyone actually done an experiment where they've spotted what happens in the brain when someone has that aha kind of light bulb moment when they discover something or think they've made a sort of cognitive breakthrough any thoughts guys i don't know actually i guess it'd be very hard to have someone in the brain scanner exact point when they have the aha moment that's true but but actually it has been done and it turns out it's all down to the nerve transmitter chemical dopamine what people do in fact the, the first evidence for this people were asking people in the brain scanner to play a computer game where they had to shoot tanks and every time someone shot a tank they get some money and this is a rewarding result. And so when people get that reward, they get a little surge in, in dopamine, which is the brain's pleasure chemical. So there's a part of the brain which is tuned up to make you experience pleasure. And when something good happens, this goes off like a machine gun and it releases this squirt of dopamine, which makes you feel good. And so when you have that aha moment, part of the pleasure of thinking, I've cracked it, it's all down to this chemical dopamine, which is pretty amazing, isn't it? So you actually got a reward for actually understanding things. Exactly. So that's why we learn. It's a great feeling. We've heard from Alison in Norfolk. And she wants to know, if a mosquito bites someone with HIV and then goes and bites someone else, does it pass on the disease? Thankfully, no, because otherwise Africa would have a much worse problem than it currently has, where there is something like four million new cases of HIV in Africa every year, and they're thankfully not caused by mosquitoes, because if they were, we would all be in really serious trouble, because it would be like malaria. The reason is quite simple, actually, because we know that mosquitoes are very good at transmitting viruses, certainly things like dengue get spread by mosquitoes, and that's a virus. There's a very good reason why... This isn't the case with HIV, though, which is that HIV is a very specialist virus which has on its surface viral Velcro, molecular docking stations, that lock on to a certain class of cells, CD4 positive cells, which you only find in us, in humans. There's related versions of HIV in chimpanzees, SIV, and they have their own specific cells that it locks on to. But because those specialist cells are only found in us, HIV is a very fragile virus. It can't survive in the mosquito's intestine. It can't lock on to cells in the mosquito. Therefore, the mosquito doesn't get infected. Therefore, the mosquito can't amplify the dose from the person who it bites. And therefore, it can't infect the next person because it can't inject more viruses than it took in. And because HIV is very poor at infectivity anyway, it's actually quite hard to catch HIV, believe it or not. There's no risk. So, you know, I can reassure everyone you're not going to catch HIV from a mosquito bite, which is a good thing. thing. Dave, quick question from Brianna, who says, how are gases separated for bottling? So this is how you separate oxygen from nitrogen in the air or get other gases like helium. Um, the way it's done commercially mostly is by cooling gases down, cooling air down, and all the different gases in air have different points in which they condense. So um, carbon dioxide will come out first, then um, oxygen, then nitrogen, and you eventually get left off with argon. So you just slowly cool it down at different temperatures. You take out different um, gas, uh, the different liquid gases, and then you take them out again. Um, helium, though, you You've got, you can, it doesn't, isn't done in the atmosphere. You can only find it in the top of oil wells. It's created by radioactive decay. Thank you very much, Dave, for a very succinct answer. Well, that's it for this week. We've run out of time, so it remains me to say thank you very much to our production team, Ben Vowsler, Mary Sentlingham, Tom Simpkins, to Dr Dave and Dr Helen. We're back next week looking at what's in the air and whether it's safe for us to breathe. So join us for an atmospheric and ambient Naked Scientist next week. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com.